Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. Today I want to talk to you about Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. And all the Pentecostals in the house go, all right. <laughs> all right. Pentecostalism, though, is more than just speaking in tongues. Can I put that out there? We're going to talk about tongues and those kinds of things, but there is so much more that is given to us at the birth of the church, which is the day of Pentecost, the day the Spirit was given to us. And so what is Pentecost? That's the question that I really want to answer. Specifically, what is it? And what does it offer us? And why is it important to us? Pentecost is pretty simply stated the completion of the work of the law. Hear me out. Penta means 50. And so Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. If you go to the Old Testament, when the law was given, 50 days after the Israelites left Egypt and camped at Mount Sinai, the law was given. So there's a side-by-side -side comparison between the law. I wrote on my hand, so y'all don't be distracted by that. I do that sometimes during worship. Uh, so I don't want you to be distracted, but I'm going to do a lesser than and to greater than argument for the Spirit in opposition to the law. Because I want you to know, had the Spirit not come, what well, we would be bound to, but because the Spirit has come, the beauty that we have opportunity to. Amen? And so it is a completion, the Pentecost, the, the 50 days after the resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was given as a completion of the law. I'm going to say completion, not destruction. I'm not going to say that it diminished something that was bad because Paul himself said the law wasn't bad. The law was good for it pointed us to Christ. But ultimately, Pentecost allowed Christ to live in us. And so we see in Pentecost the giving of the Spirit, the completion of the law, and the promise of Ezekiel fulfilled. And this is the promise that Ezekiel gave in his prophecy, 36, 26 through 27. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone. This is Ezekiel talking on behalf of God from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause, everybody say cause. This is important or will be for sure. This will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so what's Ezekiel saying? He said, listen, when you move out of the law, there's going to be a time I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you. You have a heart of stone right now. The law didn't do anything to the heart that you have. Your heart's just as insensitive to the things of the Spirit as it's ever been. It's non-malleable. It's hard. It's destructive. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. It, the, you, the, the law 
benefits you in only a certain number of ways, which I'll cover in a little while. But there'll be a point in the future where I'm going to take that heart, that, that inflexible, that hard heart out of you, and I'm going to put in a soft and malleable heart in you, a heart that I can that I can touch, a heart that I can speak to, a heart that can hear my voice. And in that, by delivering you the Spirit, I'm going to cause you essentially to walk in righteousness. You know that we don't have any ability to walk in righteousness on our own, right? And so by Pentecost, by the giving of the Spirit, this is what happens. The heart that we had was taken out, and the heart of God was placed in. I don't want to be cheesy, but we were given a spiritual heart transplant when we received Christ Jesus and the Spirit indwelled us. Amen? And so what I want to do over the next little bit is I want to talk to you about what the law offered as opposed to the greater Spirit offering. And I'm going to do that in four different instances. We see four very beautiful things which should give us a greater appreciation and reverence for God and His Spirit. I'm going to come out of, just so you know, I'm, I'm not probably not going to turn back and forth. I'm going to summarize, but just so you know, I'll read the text address so you can take it down, write notes, but I'm going to summarize a lot. Between Exodus and Acts, the giving of the law and the giving of the Spirit. So the first point, the first thing I want you to see, the first beautiful thing, that happened in Pentecost is we experience unity. Exodus 19, 5 through 8, and I will turn there for this. 19, 5 through 8 says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, will, that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders and the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, they all said this, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So they came into agreement. They had a unified agreement that they were going to do whatever God told them to do. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So he went to get back to God and said, people said they're down. They're going to do whatever it is you tell them to do. Of course, we know that that ended up not being true, but that's, that's what happened. God called his people at the base of Sinai to unity. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Are you okay with this? They said, yes. He said, okay, you're my people. The problem with the unity of the law is that it only offered unity to a particular nation of people. It was very exclusive. It didn't offer unity to whosoever will, but just to the very specific Jewish population, which leaves the rest of us, the Greek, the Gentile, out in the cold. We don't have, at that point, the benefit of the law because it was given for the Israelites. Everybody understand? So they were unified by the law. That's good for them. That's not great for us. 
But by the Holy Spirit, we were unified as, a, as an inclusive covenant. We were given an inclusive covenant, which means that now it no longer excluded us, but included us. The Bible says in the book of Acts that they were together in one place and that they were together continually in prayer. In this unified state, the Spirit came. We have got to learn to be a unified people because the Spirit came to bring us unity. The Spirit came so that we might be unified. The church has to stop being so fractured, so frustrated, so argumentative. We should all get along. I don't care if you're Baptist. I don't care if you're Church of Christ. I don't care if you're non-denominational. I don't care who you are. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, then it doesn't matter who you are. You are part of the family of God. You are unified with Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. This is a beautiful promise, but also an incredible challenge to us because our proclivity is to ostracize the people that don't look like us, don't act like us, don't think like us, don't come from the region we came from, don't have the money that we have, deal with issues we don't deal with. And so we tribalize. But God didn't ever intend for us to be tribalized. He intended us to be one people. It's time for the church to be one people because we have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to be one people. And I can prove this to you in Galatians 3.8. Let me turn here real quick. Galatians 3.8 reads like this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Wait a minute. 3.28, not 3.8. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's got to stop. We have got to stop acting like we're different folk. We're family. Is that okay with y'all? Are you sure? Because I see Christians treating other Christians like they're not family. But God, through one spirit, made us one people. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or Gentile, male, female, it doesn't matter. You are one people by one spirit. Amen? It's time for us to start acting this way because this is what it says in Ephesians. It says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. This is what I'm telling you. Be diligent to preserve, which means you have to take action, you have to be motivated, you have to chase after unity. Because unity, by our very nature, isn't what we search for. We want to tribalize. I want to hang out with the people that act like me. Right? Preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Stop trying to be an individual. We are a collective entity through the Spirit of God. And this isn't a horrible thing. This is an incredible blessing. Because now the same Spirit that lives in you lives in me. When you hurt, I should hurt. 
When you celebrate, I should celebrate. When you have a need, I should act as though that's my need. We should love one another, fellowship with one another, prop one another up, pray with one another. This is the benefit of unity to truly be family. We preach family all the time. And then sadly, sometimes we act like our earthly families. You know, I don't like my cousin. Don't like your cousin, but he's still your cousin. You might be, might be somebody in this room you don't like. But you know what? They're still your weird cousin. You still have to love them. Take them in the yard, smack them around a little bit, let them smack you around a little bit, come back to Grandmama's Thanksgiving table, and be family. Because we are to be unified in the Spirit. We have, we have the privilege of being unified in the Spirit. I like the idea that I'm never alone, that I always have you. I put this on Facebook earlier this week. When I was in the military and in law enforcement, I learned several significant truths. One of them is that a man that knows he's not fighting alone will fight longer and harder than a man who thinks he's fighting alone. The church doesn't fight alone. I should be able to fight alongside my brothers. I have the spirit to fight alongside of me. People give up church. People give up what they've been given because they find frustration. Because they don't want to fight harder and longer. Because they think they're fighting by themselves. That's why the Bible says love one another, encourage one another. And we can do that because... In Pentecost, in the giving of the Spirit of God, we were made unified. We were made family. Not just part of God's family, but part of one another's family. Amen? I told you, I think that's beautiful. But that means we have to give up our dissension, our frustration, our factions. We have to say, I don't care about your addiction. Let's get you over that. You know why? Because God doesn't care about your addiction. He cares about getting you over that. Amen? God, that's so good. God's good. Do you know why unity is so important? Psalm 133, 1 through 2 gives us a hint as to why unity is important. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brothers to dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil. Now, no oil in the Old Testament is used for the purposes of anointing. So it's like precious oil is to say, like being an, like having an anointing upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robe. So it's he says, it's good that brothers dwell in unity because where brothers dwell in unity, there's the anointing. And it is such a penetrating anointing. It's like it just runs completely down into your beard, down your robes. And it continues to say, even down to the bottom of your feet, it covers you. The anointing covers you when you are unified. What is the anointing, Pastor Jim? That sounds like a credibly religious word. Man, let me just tell you, the anointing is just a fancy word for the manifest presence of God. Where there's unity, there's the manifest presence of God. Where there's unity, chains are broken. Addictions are broken. Relationships are restored. Unity fixes everything that is against the will of God in your life. 
So we should be unified. Imagine if this whole room got together on the same page, believing the same things, the same promises of God, wholly and completely the word of God, what we could do in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, 12 people turned the world upside down. There's more than 12 people in this room. We should be able to turn the world upside down 13 times. All right. I got other points to cover. I just really, I think it's incredible that God decided to be unified with us. Amen? And because he decided to be unified with us, maybe we should act like him. Because he's given us the ability to do it. Number two, in Pentecost, we witness God's presence. In Exodus 19, 16 through 19, I'm not going to go read that, but if you go read that, you're going to see that, that the presence of God came down upon, upon Mount Sinai, and it came down with fire and smoke and lightning, and there was an earthquake, and it says the people were absolutely terrified. The, the presence of God terrified them. Beyond reverence, if you'll look at the word, really look it up, search into it, it means like shaking, trembling. They were absolutely terrified. They didn't go to the mountain because they were afraid that they would die if they touched it. God told them, if you touch this mountain, you'll die. And they're like, well, we're not going there. We're not going to take a chance of accidentally touching it because we're not sure exactly where it starts. So I'm just going to stay back here. That's the reason why Moses went up by himself. But they were terrified. In the giving of the law, the people were terrified by the presence of God. And you know, in the book of Acts, where the Spirit was given, there's no mention of terror. The presence of God was still made known. There was fire upon the heads of the people. There was a mighty Russian wind. They were speaking in tongues. Mighty Russian wind, that's I watched, I can't remember what it was, some show, you know, how they try to make these Bible shows and 99% of them are inaccurate and the 1% that isn't inaccurate has 50% inaccuracies in it. And it, it's, they're in the upper room and the spirit falls and this mighty Russian wind, you see some guy's hair go, <laughs> right? That doesn't sound like a mighty Russian wind from God to me. I'm thinking a mighty rushing wind through the upper room must have sounded like a hurricane. Y'all ever hear somebody talk about a tornado? Man, it sounded like a freight train coming through my living room. I'm thinking that's what the presence of God sounds like. Because God's too big to be just... <laughs> but even with a mighty rushing wind, even with something they'd never seen before, which is tongues of fire on top of the heads of people, hearing things they've never heard before, which is people speaking in tongues. There is no indication in the giving of the Spirit that they were terrified. God presented himself by the Spirit, and although I'm absolutely certain there was reverence, there was no trembling, shaking, and terror. You know why? Or you want to know why I think so? Because Jesus isn't a liar. Because Jesus said the spirit, when he comes, will be a spirit of peace. 
and comfort and a helper to you. And the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, we were given the Spirit so that we could recognize God's presence as peace upon us, as help for us, as a teacher for us, as a counselor for us. The word that essentially is the umbrella word for all of these other smaller words is paraclete, which is solely used to define the Holy Spirit, and it means the one who comes alongside. Man, that's comforting, right? The presence of God should comfort us to know that the Holy Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost determined to live in us so that he might walk alongside of us to bring us peace, comfort, to teach us. I praise God for that. Not only does his presence offer those things, but his presence also offered us a voice. In the day of Pentecost, it says they spoke in tongues. I will tell you, this is normative behavior. That's a hermeneutical phrase. It's a, uh, I'm not even going to get into that. It's, it, it means it's, it's normative behavior. It's something that you can expect to see repetitively within Scripture. Non-normative behavior is like when the sun stood still. You don't see that anywhere but one place. So you can't expect that that's going to happen now. Normative behavior in the New Testament is that people spoke in tongues. Paul spoke about speaking in tongues. He said, I prefer prophecy. I, pers I prefer teaching. But I praise God that I speak in tongues. Because I speak in tongues, God gave me a voice through those tongues, through the gifts of the Spirit, so that I personally may be edified. So he gave us a voice in his presence. But not only that, but he lent his voice to us in his presence. I've had people ask me, man, I thought this was a Pentecostal church. It is a Pentecostal church. I prefer the word for full gospel because it doesn't freak out people that aren't Pentecostal. But this is a Pentecostal church. We believe in the Pentecost is real, and everything that the Spirit offered on the day of Pentecost is still real. But you know what it's not? It's not out of order. And so when they say, why aren't this, why, I thought this was a Pentecostal church, what they mean is, why isn't anybody running around here? Why don't I hear anybody speaking in tongues? How come I don't see this or that? You know why? Because God's a God of order. And there's a personal prayer language that you have for your personal edification, and there is a congregational speaking in tongues, provided there's an interpretation so that God may lend his voice to us not just give us a voice. Oh, man, you're messing me up. I'm not messing you up. The Word of God's messing you up. I praise God that He's a God of order, but that He also saw fit to speak to us, that He lets His presence be known by giving us His peace, His comfort, His love, His teaching, and His voice. Amen? In Pentecost, we realize God's righteousness. Exodus 20 through 31, that's 12 chapters. 
Moses is up on top of the mountain and he's getting the law. I'm not going to read those chapters to you. I feel like it would take too much time. And quite honestly, they're a little boring unless you're studying them specifically. But I do encourage you at some point, go read through them. What you're going to find is very, very detailed instruction about the way man should live in regard to God, in regard to other people. Why was the law given? The law was given because we needed to be governed. Do you know the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one good, not one righteous, no, not one. None of us seek after him. This is what the Bible says. And because none of us are good, none of us seek after him except that the Spirit draw us, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. <clears throat> Since none of us are good, we needed a regulator. We needed a governor. And the law was intended to govern us, to show us how to live righteously. But it had a greater purpose, to show us that we couldn't live righteously. It doesn't matter how many laws you write, somebody's going to break them. Right now there's a big debate, gun laws. Write another gun law. I dare you. People that kill people are already breaking the law. There's no law that can be written that can truly govern the heart of a man that does not desire to be governed. And God knew this. So he gave us the law, though, so that we could see where we lack, to point to our unrighteousness so that we might recognize his righteousness. Amen? And in the Spirit, fulfilled that righteousness in us. On the day of Pentecost, we were given, we realized God's righteousness. Romans chapter 8. Let me, let me read this real quick. Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, just so you know. Verses 10 through 14. If Christ is in you, so go ahead and ask yourself that question now. Is Christ in you? And if he is, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is life in the spirit. There is righteousness in the spirit. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, everybody say by the Spirit, by the Spirit. you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You want to know how you become righteous? Not by the law. The law can only point you to the idea of what righteousness looks like, but doesn't have the ability to motivate you to righteousness. It's the Spirit in you that motivates you to righteousness. It's the work of Christ that allowed the Spirit to be released to the believer, the one who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, so that we might walk out righteousness. Remember I told you, I asked you, had you repeat back to me a few moments ago, the word cause. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're caused 
to walk out the ordinances and statutes of God. And we do that through conviction. Anybody ever felt conviction in here? Like after you gave your life to the Lord, you did something stupid, and you're all, oh, I can't believe I did something stupid. And it's just churning in you. You just know you got to throw this up. You got to get rid of this. That's conviction. What that isn't is condemnation. We don't live in condemnation. Condemnations of the enemy. The Bible in Romans chapter 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what the difference between condemnation and conviction are? Condemnation will tell you, and many of you have done this, so pay attention to this definition. Condemnation will tell you you're never going to get that right. So stop trying. Conviction will say by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, you can get that right with the Spirit's help. Amen? I praise God that in the delivering of the Spirit, I have the hope and the promise that by the work of Christ I am saved, but it's the Spirit that provokes me to say to be saved. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Holy Spirit provokes, and the Holy Spirit causes us to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 24 through 25. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You're all, wait a minute, I'm still dealing with passions and desires. Then crucify them. You've been empowered to do it. Well, what happens if I do it again? Then crucify them again. And if you do it again, guess what? Crucify them again. Because we serve a, a beautiful, loving God who tells us that if we ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Now, we don't sin for the sake of grace. Paul said we don't do that. But if we do sin, there is grace. That's good. With its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. And so I tell you, if the Spirit provokes you, based on the work of Christ to be saved and then empowers you, causes you to walk according to the ordinances of God. Why are you trying to add stuff to the list God didn't ask you to add to? I told the church Wednesday, we're going through Galatians. I told the church Wednesday, people add things to their faith out of fear. They get to a place where they're all, man, I don't think I can do this on my own. Or I don't, I don't think God's got this. I can't see evidence that I'm moving forward. I can't do whatever. I can't control it is essentially what you're saying. So am I really saved? And we're all, you know what? I bet if I had this, I'll look better to God. I'll, I'll, I'll really be saved. The problem with that is you're always going to need to add something else. And then you're going to add something else. And then you're going to add something else which would be fine except for where Paul said, don't add anything to this. It says, for the sake of freedom, Christ set us free. Did you hear that? For the sake of being removed from our checklists, Christ set us free and broke the yoke of slavery over us, which means that he broke the yoke of the law over us so that we didn't have to slave under it anymore. He didn't break us free from it just so we could stick our head in the other half of it and help him carry it. He broke it. We're not bound by it anymore. 
because of the Spirit of God in us. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's beautiful because I'm inept. I don't have the ability to walk in righteousness. But now I know I can trust the Spirit of God in me to cause me to walk in righteousness and convict me when I don't and forgive me when I ask for forgiveness. And everybody say it. Amen. Amen. And then finally, in Pentecost, we possess God's life. There's a parallel here that just blows my mind. Moses comes down off the mountain. He hears some singing or what he believes to be singing. And he comes down and he sees them worshiping the Israelites because he'd been gone a few days. They got concerned, so they made a golden calf and they were dancing around it and worshiping it. Moses did what Moses does. Moses got mad, smashed the tablets. God talked to Moses. God said, collect everyone to you who didn't worship to that God, that false God. I'm paraphrasing. So all the Levites gathered themselves to Moses because the Levites hadn't made sacrifice to that idol or hadn't worshiped that idol. And then God gave them this command. I want you to strap your sword to your thigh and I want you to go from gate to gate, family to family, neighbor to neighbor, and kill all of them who worshiped at the foot of this idol. And the Bible says 3,000 men were killed that day. In the giving of the law, 3,000 people were killed. Why? Because the law can't make you righteous. But here's the beauty. When you look at the giving of the Spirit, the day of Pentecost, Amen. Amen. Peter stands up, full of the Spirit, presents the gospel, this is the same Peter that ran from a little girl at a campfire. Stood up in front of the same people that killed Jesus. Told them the truth about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and this is what had happened. It says that they were cut to the quick and asked, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized, you shall be saved. And the church was added 3,000 souls that day. Look at this. Did you, did you catch that, how beautiful that is? The law brings death. It'll always bring death. Whatever you're trying to place yourself under is always going to bring death. But the grace of the, and the Spirit of God will always bring life. This is the promise of 1 John 2.25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. I thank God for the Spirit for the delivery of the Spirit to us on the day of Pentecost. And as much as I, I love unity, the fact that we have a, a voice, righteousness, and life, none of that's possible without Jesus. The Holy Spirit is here for one purpose, primarily to edify the name of Jesus, to glorify the name of Jesus. And so I ask, where are you? Where are you in regard to your relationship with Jesus? It's the only question that I have. I want you to be unified, not with me. That's a consequence, but with Jesus. I want you to walk in righteousness. 
I want you to know the presence of God. God died so that you could be in his presence and know his presence. Amen? And so I'm going to ask you a question. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of times people say when they start an invitation, they say, bow your head and close your eyes. I don't do that because of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We ask people to bow their head because we don't want to embarrass them. Romans 3.23 says all of us have been in your shoes. So you shouldn't be embarrassed anyway. It'd be better if maybe you raise your hand and us get to see it so we can love you. Because now you're part of the family. Amen? And so I would ask, if all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and if God sent Jesus that we might have eternal life, where are you at with Jesus? If you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, or you have, it's been a long time or even time enough to know that you've allowed yourself to drift away. The day that we celebrate the giving of the Spirit is the best day I can think of to solve that problem. And this is how we do it. We confess Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says, you shall be saved. If that's you, if you've never said it, feel provoked to say it, or you have said it and you know you've drifted away, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? It's very easy, but it's very costly. Anybody at all? Amen. In that case, I praise God for a church that seeks his face. Amen. People, do you get fussy when people don't raise their hand? No, it's not my work to do anyway. My work's to deliver the message. It's Holy Spirit's to work to do what the Holy Spirit does. But I thank God for you. Amen? Let's pray.